Welcome to the New Books Network. This is the second part of what is actually going to be a three-part series, despite the claims of the first episode. In taking a look at the length of the text, it's not particularly long, but it's broken up into two parts. The first part is the context and the introduction to the themes that follow, and then you have the curriculum items. For those that did not listen to the first in this series, and are probably scratching their heads currently, the point is this. I put together, and I'll give you the title, An Antidote to Stupidity, aka Voluntary Ignorance, and the subheading of this part is Curriculum Elements. So look, this is an experimental piece. It's based on a number of themes that have been important to me, and some of the other folks at the speculative non-Buddhism site for the last 10-15 years, which is the role of anti-intellectualism in spirituality and Western Buddhism more broadly, but also questions of identity and ideological capture, and the question of how to communicate any of this in a way that people might find useful, right? And it's not easy, because we all know that religion and spirituality more broadly very, very complex topics, and they're interwoven to a lot of very personal, subjective experiences and desires and concerns. So one of the projects that this podcast has been involved in is just trying to really encourage people to become more aware of the role of ignorance and intelligence and thought in the practicing life, and the need to bring those characteristics or qualities of our shared humanity to the way we all think about what practice is and isn't, and who we are and who we're not, and what the claims are that people make and, well, how we should think about them, evaluate them, without getting stuck in what we might call lazy dichotomies. An example being, well, experience is all that matters, or you lot are ignorant, or, well, Buddha said, and therefore everything else is kind of secondary. There's much more, of course. You should be familiar with some of those wonderful stories that we tell ourselves about all of this kind of stuff we involve and dedicate our lives to. So I'll carry on and just get stuck into the second part of this now three-part series. I will be honest... I am not equipped to put together what this text claims to be, an antidote to stupidity. Especially not for many of those who stop by to visit the SNB site, and who are likely better educated than I am. 
My only grace in this is that I care little what others think about my actions. That is, at least until I know them well enough. So I'm happy to blunder, muck up and stumble through my own limits in public. In this, perhaps I am useful for other less formally trained souls, and a reminder that intellectual culture need not be seen as elitist, but rather as locations that can be visited, or as a democracy of ideas, as Laruel suggested, one available to anyone willing to apply themselves and follow where curiosity leads. What I attempt to do with what follows is to scratch the surface of some of the materials that might go into an anti-anti-intellectual stance on, or curriculum for, the practicing life for the less intellectually trained, the newbie to thinking about practice and Buddhism at the Great Feast. We might think of it as a starter pack, or an introductory brochure for orientation to the big themes this while attempting to bring those materials forth as practice items in the reform of reflective questions. Now, many Buddhist traditions take contemplative reflection as fundamental to practice, and this is often missed by the tendency towards present-moment fetishism and the negation of thought amongst Western Buddhists. Of course, those invitations can all too often become mere indoctrination, or the performance of decision. This is unfortunate. Bringing together meditative equipoise and the training of attention with explorative critical thought is a great antidote to anti-intellectual approaches to the practicing life, as well as to the aloofness that often accompanies the disembodied intellectual who often goes too far in the opposite direction. Is that you? Hmm. Personal, Personal motivation. motivation. Part of my motivation for writing all this is that I have long been fascinated by ignorance and the contours of confusion and their relationship to identity formation. The habit of seeking confirmation and validation of one's ideas, current state and increasingly one's identity has always struck me as telling and it has been key in my exploration of practices and theories relating to Buddhism and the therapeutic culture I dabble in. It is, of course, normal to seek acknowledgement and signs of approval or disapproval from peers, though the marriage of this social drive to hyperreality, social media norms and the mores of late-stage capitalism have turned it into a primary dysfunction of our age. When groups engage in such behaviour, forms of collective delusion and intellectual comfort food ensue. Ideology is central in all this, and in the process of collective identity formation. Though predominantly used for defining and describing political or economic models by wider society, for me ideology as a conceptual framework has been most interesting when used to unpack the formation of collective modes of self and the ignorance that surrender into such enclaves of human imagination requires. Now, as a term for thinking about the collective psyche, ideology fills a glaring gap in the arsenal of Buddhist rhetoric and acts as a diversion from the overfocus on the self of the last century in the West and its hypochondriac manifestations today. 
It is a means to discover what lies underneath rather than within. Thus, in an odd sort of way, the concept of ideology offers a doorway out of the never-ending search for happiness within the individual or tribe and the chimera of the true self that continues to blight our age and that hides in the material of many Western Buddhist teachers. Hmm. So how do we encourage a turnaway from the unidirectional obsessions of practice as therapy, practice as self-discovery, practice as going within, practice as discovering the essence of the I? Hmm. All this without losing the clear need to work with our experiences of selfhood as forever changing beings caught in confusion, ignorance and suffering. Hmm. Going engagement with intellectual culture, coupled to contemplative practices, has been effective as a response to these questions in my own life. To deny my individuality is to find trouble fast. To remain in a solipsistic stance is to suffer the curse of narcissism and the confines of a very small existence indeed. It's not a surprise that the obsessions of identity politics have produced so much depression in our younger folks. The way out of the dysfunctional mess that defines contemporary spirituality is through the collective resources of our species, and stepping out of the spiritual rat race for the next big answer that may finally resolve all problems and confusion. Spiritual materialism writ large. There must also be a strict rejection of the cheap payoffs of perennialism. The movement towards new forms of tribalism are not the answer either. They merely stretch the self into pockets of selves, which act as outposts for resisting the bigger concerns of our age, while producing, or reproducing, the same patterns of dysfunction found in the individual self. In this, Buddhism remains relevant though perhaps in its less popular forms of wisdom. A harsh take on emptiness and anatman, and a refusal to bring in atman, are disruptive tools par excellence. The move is painful, destructive, dismembering even, and requires death to become an ongoing companion. No wonder so many have turned the narrative of non-self into a heartwarming search for the true self. Though promised and sold by Buddhist groups, challenging the illusion of a self-existing I is far more complicated than much contemporary Buddhism lets on. And much of this is due to the role collective conscience, subconscious and unconscious plays within us. The role of Western Buddhisms in forging new identities has been poorly elaborated and insufficiently critiqued too. This is especially true with regards to its ability to inculcate new forms of ignorance and inculcate followers into the decisional game. One consequence we might accept is that Buddhists caught in the decisional matrix need to be challenged and their ideas, practices and claims led into dialogue with other insights, knowledge and practices from beyond Buddhism's borders. It is not such a hard thing to do and not need be an aggressive attack. The twist in this game is to find that sweet spot that Laroel speaks of in his non-philosophy and Glenn elaborates in non-Buddhism, namely fitting proximity. Recall the meaning of this term? 
not too close to be blinded by the glare of brilliance, wonder and promise, not too far to lose the light and goods therein. Anti-intellectualism is expensive. When brought to the practicing life, it disables the adult practitioner from maturing beyond the initial allure of the spiritual and gives license to suppress any potentially subversive practices into the service of one's ego obsessions and sense of identity. It kills curiosity and keeps the mind enclosed in matrices of self-serving intellectual limits and in, more common parlance, excuses for not actually thinking. Offering a helping hand to folks addicted to such spaces could be considered a compassionate act. One often missed payoff of the painful route of challenging the self, as Buddhism invites us to do, is the room it affords for movement. The focusing on the self is suffocating after all, and disidentifying with its obsessions creates room to move, room to breathe, and room to think. The challenge is never to turn such space into iterations of finality, ultimate transcendence, or the completion of whatever we imagine the past to be. In this regard, Chogyam Trungpa's concept of spiritual materialism does remain a fundamentally useful one, reminding us that we clever fools are adept at turning our gains and insights and practices into forms of self-defense, self-aggrandizement, and for keeping us from actually making any kind of real progress. We practitioners. Yes, you and I. As practitioners, theoretical materials can be kept as, well, theoretical materials. But of course, they can also be creatively harnessed into practices of contemplation. Transformation of the material of the body, feelings, emotions, states, stance, perception and align with goals or horizons that range from seeking the meaning of life or enlightenment, whatever that might be, to becoming more patient with one's own neurosis and obsessions, to becoming a better person, yes, I'm still working on that one, to developing clarity of mind or a stoic ability to face the horrors of the world, including most of the television coming out of America these days. This is all part of the Buddha trip we got on, right? Isn't it? In today's world, coupling the contemplative to becoming better informed, more intelligent, and more capable of thinking the world are very much worthy goals, and they are to be kept in mind while listening to the rest of this or reading the text. Everybody has got to eat. Now, regular listeners will be familiar with my appreciation for the metaphor of the great feast. I find it more appetizable, appetizing, than Laruel's democracy of thought. A feast is a disarming affair after all, right? Rather than an elitist enclave that the non-elite can feel instinctively excluded from or in conflict with, each diner is seated around a table. Meals are served and eaten with the same type of cutlery and dishes. The alcohol, more or less, is the same, the water too, and of course, we all have to head off to the toilet at some point. Wherever you are eating, the basic processes are similar, if not identical. Treating intellectual culture in a similar manner resonates with me, as it is essentially anti-classist. Of course, this is not to be a utopian fantasy. 
A three-star Michelin restaurant attracts a different crowd from the local chippy. But the unifying element, our basic humanity, unites dinos across the financial divide. You and I can eat posh French food if a windfall occurs. Top managers would join the McDonald's queue if the economy collapses or their job is eaten up by AI. In each location, regardless, mouths open and close. Chewing and swallowing and sipping and excreting are the common ground that remind us of our shared mammalian nature. This is no small thing. And if we approach ideas and concepts in the same way, then it is for us to pick up the cutlery, to tackle the food, put it in our mouths, to swallow, digest and excrete. Bear that in mind with what follows, because each of the topics is accompanied by endless great minds, lineages of masters and gurus, a canon with more text than anyone could hope to read, and a richness of thought, application and debate. We must be picky eaters to some degree. And it is worth remembering this, because in many ways the competitive approach to intellect demands that we all kind of know everything. And that's just silly. We do, though, have access to a mind-blowing wealth of human creativity, and it is a thing of wonder. And seeing intellectual culture as fundamentally a creative act is also helpful in returning our intellectual resources to the human world. This richness makes any area of human knowledge absurdly complex, however, extremely rich, and of course beyond any of our capacity to master fully. To think is always a relational practice, and to engage these thinkers, materials and enduring dichotomies requires a relational practice that makes sense to us, as we are in a given phase of our lives, and that speaks to and challenges our limits, desires and natural ability. To non-academics like myself, I would encourage a sense of courage when dealing with overly assertive intellectuals who claim they have it figured out according to Thinker X. This is not to say they might not have, but there is no need to be bullied or silenced into obedience to their claims, or follow their insistence that if you haven't read all the books by Thinker X, Y or Z, you have no say in the argument. Find your own way through and ask for help when you need it. Relief from the often arrogant realm of human thought is provided by the recommendation to follow what drives you and acts as curious attraction. Beware the claimants that their favourite thinkers are all you need too. Avoid the ideologues who insist the world is forever a mirror to their pet beliefs. They are everywhere these days, as you've probably noticed. A basic grounding in the big themes, a comprehensive education of sorts, Yes, that's another anti-classist idea, is recommended. The curriculum thus follows ought to develop into what is something of a big picture, with big picture concepts that allow for orientation to the human condition beyond Buddhism's concerns or spirituality's obsessions, but includes them all the same. This is what makes it an antidote to the problems mentioned above. It ideally serves the function of an anti-self-help plan for unthinking practitioners to start to critique their comfy conclusions. Such a view serves as a way into practice for the intellectually savvy too. In this, the dual purpose is to help thought and the body, contemplation and concepts to find a more functional relationship.
For on the other side of this messy situation is the addict of thought as refuge. The anti-practitioner stance that has dogged a half-decent turn towards the practicing life for intellectuals has tended to ignore the rich history of the philosopher as practitioner, often treating such folks with scorn as if their bodily engagements betrayed their intellectual heights. Anyone reading up on Nietzsche's troubled life would find it hard to separate his intellectual gifts from his suffering and attempts to forge practices that would allow him to work through ill health, failing eyesight and eventual descent into madness. The aloofness that accompanies the safe space of abstract thought, intellectual reason and logical argument has often been in service to prudishness on the part of the intellectual who has been all too willing to discount the body's needs and the necessity for emotional catharsis, rupture and ecstatic expression. Those messy, irrational aspects of human nature have been too readily dismissed. Fine if that's all you can manage, but not if it is mere cowardice. For what drives intellectual pursuit beyond the professional spheres? Is it not the stuff of desire, fear, curiosity, pain and joy? What's more, why should we leave such sites of practice to the therapeutic and spiritual folks out there? or the religious, or the occasional philosopher-mystic. The oddities of the physical, emotional, and sexual are part of our human inheritance after all. Once they are accompanied by epistemic curiosity and a commitment to refining intelligence as an ongoing practice rooted in the body and our shared material existence, there really is no need for the aloofness to continue. Tune in next time for the curriculum items. And if you're brave enough, and if you'd be so kind enough, start adding your own. The best place to do that is over at the Speculative Non-Buddhism site. This is me, Matthew O'Connell, and sponsor of the Imperfect Buddha podcast. That's right, it's my podcast and I'm sponsoring it. Hmm, is that even possible? Well, who cares? I'm doing it. And this is really a reminder that I coach, mentor, and teach folks the weird and wonderful ways of the practicing life. Drawing on person-centered counseling, life coaching, critical dialogue, and years of teaching and group facilitation, I coach and mentor folks looking for an alternative to the current market of self-help, spirituality, and religion. Much of what I have specialized in touches on themes that have been explored in the podcast. So for those new to this podcast and this kind of approach to coaching, let me fill you in a little bit. I use post-traditional tools and tools taken from the world of non-philosophy and non-Buddhism and my own experimentations with both. Most of the clients that come to me through this podcast are current or ex-Buddhists, ex-spiritual types, and those cautiously approaching practice with a view to keep their intelligence and critical faculties intact. If you are an intellectual hiding your desire for something along the lines of a spiritual practice, yes, the scary quotes are out there, don't be shy. 
come on out of the closet and be proud. We'll find a way to make it work that you don't need to be ashamed of. Seriously, I mean it. I work with traditional coaching and counselling methods too, as well as meditation. And for the more adventurous folks, I can offer shamanic tools. Well, they're really neo-shamanic tools and concepts and something akin to a practice rooted in a reconfiguration of our relationship with the natural world, minus the romanticism. I offer a sliding scale, so whatever your economic status, if you're genuinely interested in upping your game, money should not be an obstacle. Wherever you find yourself in your life right now, if you wish to refine your relationship with practice and take a leap into a deeper relationship with the practicing life, do get in touch. The first session is non-committal and won't cost you a dime, a euro, a cent or a penny. We'll decide together whether it's going to be a potentially good working relationship and if so, you can commit to a cycle of practice sessions. I currently do most of those online through Skype or Zoom, although if you happen to be in Italy or somewhere near the border, you might even come down for a session in person. You'll find all you need in a contact form at imperfectbuddha.com or you can get in touch through imperfectbuddha at outlook.com. 